For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 22, which I entitled, Using Your Freedom to Love, Part 2. And um, that becomes clear because, you know, last week we were talking about how these Corinthian people were exercising the incredible freedom that Christ has given to us, but doing so without any regard for other people. They were eating this meat that was sacrificed to false gods. And apparently younger believers were watching these older believers doing this and thought to themselves, well, I guess it's okay for me to not only worship Jesus, but also worship Dionysus or Aphrodite. So they were stumbling these younger believers by using their freedom um, without any concern for other people. And so Paul draws upon his own personal example when he was in Corinth to continue his argument. He says in verse 1 and 2, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he uses this term apostle. Now in the New Testament, there are apostles with a capital A and apostles with a small a. Of course, we're familiar with the 12 apostles, the original 12 who followed Jesus during his ministry. But there were also apostles with a capital A that were a part of the New Testament church, the early church, such as the Apostle Paul and um, the Apostle James, who wrote the book of James. And Paul points to his own apostleship, his own authority, as a basis for his argument. He says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? You know, the word apostle just means sent. The sent one. And so, Jesus actually commissioned Paul to go and plant churches throughout the world. And so, he points to the fact that he personally planted the church in Corinth, the the church he was writing to. And so, maybe other People were, were questioning whether, in, whether or not he was actually an apostle. But he's saying to them, these other people, they may question whether or not I'm actually an apostle, but there's no reason for you to question that because I planted the church there in your city. He says, have I not seen the Lord? So apparently this was another qualification to become an apostle with a capital A. You know, there are people who are gifted in apostleship. But there were a a very few people who were actually apostles. So this qualification or this condition of seeing the risen Lord Jesus, this was a necessary but insufficient condition because we know in 1 Corinthians 15 that hundreds of people had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And so it must have been not only Jesus' personal commission to the Apostle Paul to go and plant churches throughout the world, but also that he saw the risen Jesus. 
So it raises the question, why is he bringing this up? He says in verse 3 and 4, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? He points out, you know, we have the right to ask you guys for money because of our labor and our service among you. Teaching, instructing, toiling for the work of God. And so he says, isn't it not right for us to at least receive some compensation because of our hard work among you? He says in verse 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, another name for Peter? This is interesting, first of all, because many of us may not know that Peter, the apostle, actually had a wife and traveled with her on occasion when he went on these missionary expeditions spreading the love of Christ. But it points also to the fact that Paul suggests that, you know, I didn't utilize my right to gain financial support from you, to ask you for that. And yet, here are these other apostles who are using their right and also bringing along their wives. And you, you guys are supporting them. So his argument is that I not only have the right for, to gain your support financially, but I also could bring along a spouse, which I'm not, and she would have to be supported as well. And yet he points to the fact that he didn't use any of those rights. He says in verse 6, Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? We know from the New Testament that Paul actually worked as a tent maker. Typically what would happen is if you were following around a rabbi, a teacher, and you were his disciple, that your, your rabbi would actually encourage you to learn a trade like tent making so that whenever you went into a city, you can earn a living. And so what they would do is the rabbi would teach them theology but then they would learn this trade so that they could go around from city to city teaching. And these, these tents, I mean, these tents that he created were uh, tents that were pretty world famous from Tarsus, where, you know, you would sew together leather tents that were waterproof. And so these were very, they were valuable and very expensive. He says... In verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a, a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? He points to how, you know, people who plant vineyards and, and cultivate vineyards, they receive some benefit from that. It's only natural that you would do that. And so Paul suggests that when I labor and instruct you in Christ, that really it's my right to be able to demand that you support me. And yet it's clear that he didn't, he didn't um, capitalize on that. But he's not just drawing from these examples or common, you know, common sense things. He points to the fact that it's also in the law. He says in verse 9 and 10, For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, 
They ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So here he quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Do not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. You must be thinking to yourself, that's persuasive. (laughs) What's he getting at? Why is he quoting this seemingly obscure passage in the Old Testament? Well, he makes it very clear by asking this rhetorical question. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? In other words, God isn't writing that in the Old Testament because of his concern of oxes, right? He he doesn't care about oxen. What he's concerned about is our humane treatment of animals and other human beings. That's the principle that he's drawing from this passage, that God doesn't want us mistreating or acting inhumanely toward animals or other people. And so likewise, he's pointing out that it's cruel. It's bordering on cruel for us, to with, for, for you to withhold money from us and support from us when we are, are laboring and toiling among you. You know, what they would do with an ox is they would uh, muzzle it sometimes if, the, if the, the landowner was greedy. And while the ox is threshing, plowing, um, it's staring at this grain all day long, but is unable to eat any of it. That's kind of uh, cruel, right? I mean, the ox should be able to, to, to eat as it's working. To put it sort of in modern terms, you know, imagine if you were working somewhere like a pizza place or whatever, and they're like, you know, you can't eat any pizza, you or any of the other employees. I mean, that's kind of cruel, right? I mean, how, how much money could they possibly lose by letting you eat as much pizza as you want? Okay, that's a bad example, I guess, right? I mean, <laughs> but you get the point, right? That, that the laborer is worthy of his wage, as Jesus says. And so... Paul makes a pretty persuasive case here that really if I wanted to exert my right for you to support me, I'm well within my bounds biblically to do so. He says in verse 11 and 12, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right uh, of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He says, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what's offered at the altar? Yeah, when you would go and offer a sacrifice in the Old Testament times, you would bring your animal to the temple and the priest would take the portions that he would sacrifice and give you some of the meat, and then he would take a portion as well as sort of a payment for his work. He says, look, look at the Old Testament. It gives us a pattern. It lays down a pattern for the way that we should receive your support as well. He says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not, willing, I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Pretty hardcore here. He's like, look, we're not not coming here groveling to you 
We're simply making the point that we did not use the right that was afforded to us, that was available to us. He says, yeah, we preach the gospel. I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. Now, when you read this word gospel, it's confusing, right? It's sort of a church word that people don't use today. It simply means the good news. And contrary to what you might associate with Christianity or the message of Christianity, the Bible actually has good news for us. You know, the bad news is that we stand separated, alienated from God because of the things that we've done wrong. And there's this chasm that separates us. And no amount of good works, no amount of us trying to veer away from the bad things that we typically do will ever bridge the gap between us and God. It's impossible. And yet God, in His love, did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He did the impossible. He came in the man Jesus Christ and died in order to pay off our moral wrongdoing. The good news, then, is that God offers this to us free of charge. We, we, we don't have to try to earn this by being a good person. We don't have to try to earn God's acceptance. Instead, we simply come to Him and receive this gift. That's why it's called the good news. And he says that this good news, he feels compelled to preach that. I'm not sure if he's using hyperbole here, that he was under compulsion. He had no choice. It must have felt that way. And you know, many of us who have experienced the grace of God, who've received that good news, have accepted it, we often feel that same thing. That, you know, it's, it's something that we have to tell people because it's so important, it's life-saving, and it could also prevent people from experiencing eternal separation from God. And so there's a responsibility there then. He says in verse 18, what then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not to make a use of my rights for preaching it. Apparently, there were people who had sowed this accusation about Paul and his character that, you know, he's just like one of those Greek sophists who roll into town teaching, you know, uh, arete, you know, which is virtuous life, or pandering the new philosophical view that's, you know, coming in through Athens. These guys would often charge money for their speaking engagements. And so they were throwing Paul into this same category saying, he's just like one of them. He's just looking to, to make money, to get rich off of uh, you guys listening to him and him speaking. Uh, we see in Acts 18, when he first went to Corinth, verse 1 through 4, that when Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, there he became acqu acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Paul lived and worked with them, uh, for they were tent makers just as he was. 
Every Sabbath, he found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So it gives us a pattern of what he was doing there. He would, by day, sow tents and basically work a full-time job sewing tents and, and taking care of himself. And then, at the end of the day, he would put away his stuff and then he would start proclaiming the message of Christ and teaching the believers there in Corinth. And so he would just do this day after day, month after month. And uh, he did this because of that accusation that was floating around. In fact, we see the same accusation there in the city of, of Thessalonica. It might have spread from Corinth there, it's not clear. But in 2 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul says that we never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So he went as far as to say, look, I'm not going to even accept a free meal from you because I don't want people to think that I'm just doing this for money. You know, imagine the Apostle Paul comes over to your house for dinner and uh, you know, you're laying out this great meal for him just out of appreciation for all that he's done for you. And so you know, he walks into your house and walks up to the table where you're going to eat and he lays down a $10 bill on the table. And you're like, Paul, what's that for? He's like, it's for dinner. And you're like, oh, I mean, come on. Uh, this is on us, right? We know that you care about us, and we know that what, what those other people are saying, but come on. I mean, it's dinner, right? And Paul's like, <laughs> well, um, you're going to have to accept this. Otherwise, I'm walking out. And, uh, you know, I, you'd, you'd probably just be like, well, okay, I'll take the $10. That's pretty hardcore that he would do that. But Paul had so much integrity, had so much concern for how people might view the message that he was proclaiming that he was unwilling to take anything from anyone. And, you know, this really stands in stark contrast to, you know, a modern-day televangelist that you see on TV who live in these palatial mansions with driveways that are lined with Maseratis and Bentleys taking advantage, uh, really, of people who are underprivileged. You know, you wish that they would exercise some restraint and not use their rights like Paul did because of the way that it discredits Christ and what people think about Christianity. He says in verse 19 and 20, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under law. So as to win those who are under law. So Paul says, look, I am willing to, to restrain myself in order to make myself uh, more culturally relevant to the people I'm reaching. You know, Paul was a Jewish man, so he understood the customs of the Jews. He was well-versed in the law and the prophets. And so even though he was free from the dietary restrictions that the Jews had to live under, whenever he started hanging out with Jewish people, you know, he observed those customs so as not to offend them. 
You know, and really, like Paul, believers need to show cultural sensitivity while they are trying to reach people in culture. Um, you know, think about it this way. How effective do you think you would be in sharing the message of Christ with somebody who's from a Jewish or Muslim background? You're sitting there eating a pork chop while you're talking to them. Think they're going to give you a hearing? No way. And so Paul is advocating that we exercise cultural sensitivity, that we restrain our freedoms in order to make sure that we're not putting unnecessary barriers before people coming to Christ. He says in verse 21 and 22, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not, I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, the law of love, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men that by all possible means I may save some. And so Paul says, I will become like the people who I'm, whom I'm, try, I'm trying to reach so that I may win them to save some. And so Paul really was a champion of understanding and assimilating into the culture in which he was trying to reach. You know, one of the things you'll notice whenever you study the life of Paul was that he was constantly foraging for culturally relevant ways to introduce the message of Christ. You get a prime example of this in Acts 17. This is where Paul was at the Areopagus, which was the center of learning in Athens. We're told Paul stood up in the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So it's interesting. He was prior to going to the Areopagus, he was going around the city studying the culture, finding ways to connect with the culture. It says that he found this altar with an inscription to an unknown God. And actually, Diogenes, the third century author and writer, talks about this in his classic work, The Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. Um, apparently, in the 500s B.C., Athens experienced a plague that threatened to wipe out the entire city. So they, the elders of Athens actually called upon Epimenides, a famous poet and philosopher, to come and help them out. So he shows up and he says, Certainly there is a God who is greater than all other gods who can help us out, who can deliver us. And so he gave uh, the people these instructions on how to figure out where they should build an altar. And when they figured that out, the stonemasons asked Epimenides, they said, so where, you know, what, who should we ascribe this, this altar to? And he said, to an unknown God. And so they offered sacrifices at the altar, and apparently the plague subsided, and the city was delivered. And so Paul was looking at this, probably familiar with the history of Athens in this story used this as a launching pad for his talk. 
In fact, when you look at Acts 17, he actually quotes the author, Aretas, uh, one of the ancient Greek poets, in his talk as a way to connect with his audience. And so really what Paul was doing is what you might call contextualization, which is just you know, a $5 word describing how we as Christians need to share the message of Christ with sensitivity to the context or the culture that we're reaching. First of all, you know, the Christian worldview doesn't seek to overtake culture. It's actually compatible with culture. You know, some of the loudest voices on the religious right will tell you that the aim of Christianity is basically to overtake the government and legislate Christian morals. That's false. Christianity can live in harmony with any culture. It's compatible with it. Secondly, Christians tend to become insular and anti-cultural. You know, one of the things you'll notice is that Christians will get locked in with a certain culture. And they typically think that yesterday's culture was the best and today's culture sucks and is immoral. And so once they get locked into this way of thinking, they're unable to adopt new styles of culture as it continues to, to mutate over time. And so uh, what you'll see is that often Christians in a culture or society become those who are anti-cultural, that they're sort of, uh, you know, museum artifacts of Christians from 100 years ago, still living in that culture. You know, really, we need to adapt to culture without adopting its worldview and values. Uh, we need to adapt over time so that we can remain relevant to our culture, to be able to speak with relevance but I also think that we need to be critical. We need to, to, to look at our culture and understand it in such a way that we're not simply gulping down the values and the worldview that our culture presents us. You know, uh, Hudson Taylor was the pioneer of modern contextualization. He was living around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And contrary to his contemporaries, uh, where, you know, the missionaries would often go to a foreign land and require that the natives start wearing European dress, speaking European languages, and essentially adopting European culture, Hudson Taylor actually decided that he was going to take a different approach. That in trying to reach the Chinese people, he decided that he was going to become like them. He studied their culture, he learned their language, he even dressed like them. Here's an after picture of him when he uh, moved to China. And so he sparked really a movement of contextualization that has helped us today to understand our culture, to become students of our culture instead of artifacts of the past. You know, really, I think we need to consume media, literature, and art with a critical eye, seeking ways to understand the worldviews that drive our culture. You know, all of us, probably consume, you know, secular music, uh, literature, movies. And yet, you know, do we stop to think, what's the underlying values or worldview that drives this? Um, 
50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote The God Who Is There. And I remember reading this when I first became a Christian. It really opened up my eyes to this concept of contextualization. You know, one of the things that he did was he actually spoke about how over time the floodwaters of relativism would overtake our culture such that people believe that truth was a subjective matter, that what's true for you is true for you and what's true for this other person might be completely uh, different or the opposite. And so one of the things that he proposed that I thought was really intriguing was this uh, stair-step diagram. And he talks about how, you know, when you, when you look at a worldview, a lot of times there's a drift that happens. First, among the intellectuals, the philosophers, and it drifts down to the artists, the musicians, then down to general culture, and last of all, to the church. The church is always, usually the last ones to understand culture and the, and the different worldviews that people hold. Schaefer says, theology has been last for a long time. It's curious to me in studying this whole cultural drift that so many pick up the latest theological fashion and hail it as something new. But in fact, what the new theology is now saying has already been said in previ- and previously in other disciplines, such as in art and music. And so he points to how as Christians we need to understand art, music, culture, in order to see and, and, and protect ourselves from these worldviews, these values that really undermine our faith. But there's more at stake. He says, those standing in the stream of historic Christianity have been especially slow to understand the relationships between various areas of thought. Do we Christians understand this shift in the contemporary world? If we do not understand it, then we are largely talking to ourselves. Yeah, that would probably characterize most Christians in America. They're just talking to themselves. They're irrelevant. And, you know, I pray that God would save us from that fate. That we would ever become irrelevant to our culture, simply talking to ourselves, using lingo that only we understand. Well, it's interesting, when you look at this today, I think it's still, I, I think it's still relevant. You know, today, philosophy sort of, I, I don't know if people really read that much philosophy anymore except for those of us who are actually getting a philosophy major. Good luck getting a job with that. <laughs> um, but philosophy in a lot of ways has been replaced by scientism. Scientism is a belief that the only way to arrive at objective truth is science. And really, I think scientists who are self-styled philosophers really call the tune when it comes to ob- objective truth. Most people in our culture say, well, you can't really know things to be true unless it's scientifically, you know, you're able to demonstrate it scientifically. Um, For example, Stephen Hawking in his book, The Grand Design, says, traditionally, these questions of philosophy, that is, what's the meaning of life? How did we get here? He says, those were questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. It hasn't kept up with modern uh, developments in science, particularly in physics. 
As a result, scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. I'd say that most people would agree with that. That we're not really looking to the philosopher to help us arrive at truth. We're looking at the scientist, the neurobiologist, um, you know, the, the um, biophysicist to tell us what is true, how we should look at the world, the astrophysicist to give us a cosmology. And yet, you know, when you look at this statement and, and analyze it critically, it sort of strikes you as a statement that isn't really a scientific statement at all, right? Sounds actually more like a philosophical statement. You know, it's really a metaphysical statement about science. And so it's sort of self-contradictory because he's making this claim that's unscientific and yet claiming that philosophy is dead. Not to mention, we, are, we exercise a certain amount of faith really in every area of life, including science. And I know that that's phrased a little bit weird for some of us who are in the scientific field. But, you know, think about it this way, just in a real common sense manner. You know, when you decided to sit down in the chair that you're currently sitting in, there was an element of faith required that when you put your weight on that chair that it was going to bear it, right? Or, for example, every time you go to Taco Bell, there's a certain level of faith that you need to exercise when you eat there that you don't have to carry around a pair of uh, spare underwear the next day, right? And really, I think it's the same with scientific inquiry to, you know, a certain degree. For example, uh, Newton's um, inver inverse square law of gravitation, you know, it helps us understand and predict uh, eclipses. And, you know, you might look at that and think that's scientific and it's objective fact, but it also presumes that what happened yesterday or today will happen tomorrow. And so there's an element of faith there. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is that there's this uncertainty in life that gives way to despair and hopelessness. You know, uh, a lot of the people maybe in this room have either seen their parents lose their job, maybe even lost their home because of the Great Recession of 08 and 09. Um, you know, many of the students that I work with in high school, they're under constant threat of mass school shootings. We all feel uh, the weight, the fear, the anxiety of a terrorist attack that could strike at any moment. And so we live really in a world of uncertainty. And really, what you see then is that many people construct meaning through experiences and the mundane. You know, there really is no other life except for this one. God probably doesn't exist. And so really what I need to do is I need to construct significance from the mundane in my life. I remember talking to this high school student and, uh, you know, he was real sharp and he claimed to be an atheist and I, I pushed him on that and said, well, so how do you arrive at morality or significance in your life if God doesn't exist? I mean, after all, we're just material beings, so how can you place value on something that's merely material. And uh, he said, well, I think that just living my life, 
you know, doing the thing that's right in front of me. That's what gives my life meaning and significance. I said, that's oddly very similar to the existential philosophers. He's like, what are those? I said, well, you know, it's a, it was a, a branch of uh, philosophers um, in the early 1900s. And so he showed up the next week, and he said, you know, you mentioned those existential philosophers. He's like, I ran across this guy named Albert Camus. You know him? I said, yeah, Albert Camus. He's like, I read some of his stuff. I'd say that's what I am. I agree with him. And so really, I think that, you know, we live in a culture that is largely existential, that, you know, we've lost a sense of hope. We've lost a sense, really, that our life has meaning, and so we construct meaning from the commonplace. In art, this is interesting. I've been doing uh, some study in art. I actually did a lot of reading on art history in my undergraduate. And modern art, contemporary art today, actually gives us sort of a picture of this existential way of life. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. His name is Sai Gochiang. And uh, it's interesting, he uses um, gunpowder on canvas a lot of times to create these ephemeral uh, images. And he points to the fact that uh, they, those who developed the gunpowder in China, were actually looking for an elixir to make themselves immortal. And so he does sort of these one-off, non-repeatable performances such as this, um, but, you know, really his crowning achievement was what was called the Sky Ladder. I don't know if you've seen the documentary on this. It's a 1,600-foot ladder that is lined with explosives uh, that is being pulled up by this hot air balloon. And he tried to complete this several different times over a 20-year period and failed. Finally, he accomplished it in this rural place in China with only a handful of people there. And so, you know, I was thinking about that, and it made me realize, you know, through his art, he's essentially communicating that my experience of this, taking something commonplace like gunpowder and creating something, is a way that gives meaning and significance to my life. Here's a, an artist, Johan Cornea. He's a Catalonian um, illustrator, and he is known for some of his really dark humor that's uh, characterized by cynicism. Um, this one's entitled Selfie. And um, he points to, even though it's humorous in a lot of ways, that uh, although my sense of humor has always been black and absurd, he says, I think that my work reflects the cynicism of real life, not mine. And so he's trying to capture what he sees in the world, the reality that we live in. Here is um, a work by Ron Muick called Mask 2, and it's this really odd sculpture where it seems like this face is suspended between sleep and death. And he points to how uh, Kelly Grobier, who uh, is an art critic, points to the name of this sculpture and says the title appears to comment upon a superficial culture of discarded personas and disposable selves. I can kind of relate to that, you know, where in a lot of ways what we're trying to do is we're trying to construct an image, an identity. 
through the things that we do, the way that we project ourselves via social media. What about music? You know, take any genre, maybe like mumble rap, right? Does that tell us anything about our culture? Well, it's interesting because um, Martin Sismar, who's actually, uh, again, a music critic, says, simplistic, subdued beats, often with snippets of strings and sometimes complemented with emo chords paired with lyrics that ping pong between braggadocio and nihilism with lots of sex and odes to heavy narcotics. That's his description of mumble rap. And he points, or, you know, a lot of the, the cultural analysts look at mumble rap and they say that really it's, it's a way to gain relief from the ever-accelerating life that we live in. Adam DePiore Evans says, mumble rap is a negotiation that offers relief from the invisible acceleration of life. It's creativity born out of boredom. And, you know, when you listen to some of the lyrics, I mean, it really captures some of the nihilistic point of view that a lot of young people that I encounter in high school hold. Here's a little quote from little Uzi Vert. I don't know if you're familiar with him. <laughs> this, is, this is the fruit of hanging out with 15-year-olds every week. He says, I'm competing with time. You'll never, ever beat time. Once you beat time, guess what? You die and time beats you. I think it's kind of interesting, you know, in a way, he's, he's essentially pointing to how his music represents, you know, a way of experiencing life, taking something that's mundane, common, and trying to gain significance from it. Because after all, there's nothing after this life, right? It's useless. Smoke Perp, in his song, Till My Fingers Blue, that really embodies, you know, the existential outlook. It's like, I'm just going to do these things until my fingers are blue, till I'm dead. And really, what it is, is you're just collecting experiences to give your, your life a sense of meaning and significance. What about in general culture? You know, really, many today grasp for meaning and significance as they collect these experiences, often memorializing it on their skin or on their social media account. Um, it's interesting, I was uh, looking at some more popular music. Uh, Simon Reynolds wrote this article, which is entitled, Music for the Stilted Generation, The Weekend's Deconstruction of Modern Life. And he says, hedonism pursued to the hilt, but created with emptiness, or uh, crested with emptiness, loneliness, and weakness. This was the weekend's subject. You know, if you, if you listen to some of his lyrics, I mean, it's pretty dark, pretty nihilistic. Here's some lyrics from False Alarm. This is about a woman, you know, who lives for materialism and ex sexual experience. He says, she loves everybody. Can't you tell by the signs? Referring to, you know, the gifts that she's probably getting from her lovers. She loves everybody. She gets off all the time. It's a dark philosophy, and it haunts her constantly, She's a false alarm to me. I thought it was interesting. It's a dark philosophy. What is, she, what, what is he referring to? It's the philosophy of life that the only thing that matters is soulless materialism and experience. 
That's the philosophy of life. That's the only thing that matters to a lot of people in our culture. Also, people no longer see technology as a tool. They view it as really an extension of themselves. You know, there was a time where you viewed your cell phone as a tool for productivity. And yet now, people see that as an extension of themselves, that, you know, who you are online, your presence, is essentially a part of who you are. It's really odd, actually, to meet some people who, you know, you follow their Instagram account, and it just seems like they're the funnest, coolest people on earth, and then you get around them, and they're totally drab, devoid of personality. They're trying to construct something through their technology. Also, the hollowness of this existential worldview leaves many people feeling the dread of facing a meaningless world. Um, You know, it's really surprising that within recent history, the number of suicides among people ages 15 to 24 has skyrocketed. Actually, it has overtaken um, other causes to become the second leading cause of deaths among teens. And so that's representative of the despair that I think a lot of people feel in our culture. And finally, you know, when we look at theology, a lot of times the church is way behind. They, they have resisted culture. They scoff at culture. They take an anti-cultural stance. And as a result, um, they end up swallowing these worldviews and values whole. So when it comes to contextualization, I think that we need to seek to dismantle these ideologies under which people take shelter. You know, Francis Schaeffer described this as the roof that protects people. It's their worldview. He says, it is unpleasant to be submerged by an avalanche, but we must allow the person to undergo this experience so that he may realize his system has no answer to the crucial questions of life. He must come to know that his roof is a false protection from the storm. And so we need to gently lift the roof off of people's heads to help them see the deficit of their worldview, that it fails to capture the level of significance and meaning that they're truly looking for. And we must do it with compassion. You know, we can't hold this smug attitude toward our culture that we know better, that we're superior, that we look down our nose at our culture. Instead, we need to have really the same level of compassion that Jesus expressed as he stood over Jerusalem and wept over the city, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you together, but you resisted me. All right, let's draw some application. I think, first of all, we need to exercise our freedom in Christ. Jesus paid for our freedom at a great cost. And so we should exercise that freedom. We should not allow people to take that away from us. But we need to use our freedom to serve others in love. Paul encapsulates this in Galatians 5.13 where he says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. In other words, don't use your freedom to be like, it's my right to do this, so back off. 
Instead, we need to have a sacrificial attitude where we're willing to lay down our rights, our freedom, in order to serve and love other people. And finally, we need to seek to understand culture, engaging it critically and compassionately. You know, how often are we consuming media and thinking, just really just taking it in uncritically? And yet, uh, we're absorbing. We're absorbing what our culture is saying uncritically. We need to be able to, to look at this critically, but we should do it with compassion so that we don't become anti-cultural like so many Christians in America. All right, let's just uh, close up with some prayer. Yeah, I'm grateful for uh, pioneers like uh, Hudson Taylor and Francis Schaeffer. Um, just really paving the way for us to be Christians who are relevant in culture. And uh, I pray that we would never lose our stake in this, Lord. I pray that we can continue to be a fellowship that is culturally relevant, that speaks directly to the needs and uh, desires that people feel in our world, and that we would do so with compassion, that we wouldn't be uh, people who you know, just scoff at our culture and people in our culture who are suffering uh, with this sense of hopelessness that's pervasive in our culture. And I pray, God, that, um, you know, as we study our culture and understand it, that we can effectively share the message of Christ to people and that uh, they would be able to see that um, there is hope in you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.